0: Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't work, what led to better games, and sometimes the opposite, and we will talk about it all. And in this episode, we are looking at Iserians in Charidian of the West Marches. This is the second episode that we are looking at this book, and we might get through chapter two tonight. It's dense, yeah. folks. It's dense. And, of course, always here with me is my buddy, Brandis. How are you, sir? I'm doing
1: pretty well. I'm happy to be here tonight. I um, always say it's dense. We want to be clear. That's information-dense, not even a difficult read. Um, the font size is small. You know, old-timers, get out your magnifying glasses. Mm-hmm. But. Um, hmm It is, you know, largely, well, this chapter especially is very much your sort of variant DMG, Mm -hmm. specifically chapter five, right? If you listen to us uh, talk about travel in the DMG last year, well, this is taking a lot of that and going about one layer deeper.
0: So now I need to pull out the DMG because I want to compare directly because while, yes, I was present for those episodes, that was a minute ago.
1: <laughs> they were also most of a year ago.
0: Yes. Um, and it will be instructive to, um, to actually... to to talk about uh this um so the first the first part uh so chapter five is adventure chapter five in the fifth edition dmg okay is adventure environments and it it starts by talking about uh dungeons mostly but by by the time you get five or six pages into that chapter it moves on to the wilderness and this chapter in Iserian's in Ceridian is really all about travel in the wilderness. And so that's why, that's why we're making this comparison. Um, And the, just as an overall sort of thing to say, Iserians is making a good companion to this chapter. It's not replacing chapter five in the DMG but it okay, is adding sure. adding details where maybe there aren't as many. Um, and sometimes it's adding or expanding on a certain style of game or thematic sort of enclosure for the game. And so it might replace some of what's in chapter five, right? So uh, you would have to go, you know, item by item and really look at that and choose the one that matches your style of play. But I will say, if you're reading this book and you're going to use this book and you're going to try to run a West Westmarch's game, I encourage anybody to mostly use this and take it for what it is. You're not necessarily going to be taking just a few pieces out of this. I would posit that you're going to be taking a lot of this and using it, if not yep. everything.
1: Uh, for the sake of completeness, I want to say that uh, chapter eight, running the game is also heavily touched on here in mm-hmm. chapter 2 of Zerions. Um so it, like tracking rules get a uh, uh, actually just a reprint. That's that's a reprint with what one more line item maybe yeah Re- reprint about one more line item. And yeah that other line item but uh, two more line items and those both come from another part of the rules uh they're not actually new rules to this book it's just hey it's in the srd we can talk about it it's fine right right
0: um, um they they do provide context around it so uh, yes you know it, it, just, it's, just it's valuable be text yeah yeah but yeah.
1: there i think the goal here is to it can keep more of your reference material in one place um,
2: right
0: right so let's so let's actually back up and introduce sure. the chapter properly. I, I kind of went off uh, on a tangent, but um, what a good chap- idea! Yeah, ch- chapter two is called Survival and Travel, and literally that is what it is about. It has a section on travel. It has uh, a section on uh, basically camping. It has a section on the weather. It has a section on how to get food and water. It has a section on surveying and navigating. It has a section on hazards and hazard occurrences. And so that's the chapter. Um, And it's, you know, it's what, uh, it's only about 13 pages, but it is so densely packed with material um, that it reads like 30 pages. Right. Yeah. Um, And not just because the font is super teeny tiny. Okay. Which we kind of, We kind of joke serious joke about um, because it is really small font. They could probably increase this font one or two points and make this imminently more readable. Um, but at the cost even if, of at
1: least one more signature in the book. Absolutely,
0: yes. it would it would add so many pages. Yes, I, I'm not discounting that at all. Uh, but even even with that, even if they did increase the font, it would still be a very dense book. So, in other words, what I'm saying is, it's not just dense because the font is really tiny. It's dense because it's information rich. Yep.
1: Um, and while I'm critiquing their um, typographic choices, the tab indents of a new paragraph <laughs> being as large as they <laughs> are is absurd <laughs> yeah don't do that yeah. it's too much
0: mm-hmm.
1: a, it's about a fifth of the line that's just no too much yeah. it, it was a it was stylist
0: it was a stylistic choice and a bad one
1: yeah um uh not you know ruining the book or anything just right
0: mm, no something um, to look for and if that sort of thing irks you you know prepare to be irked because that yep. is it, prevalent um because you know these paragraphs that the book is written it's written in a readable way it's written with small paragraphs meant to be consumed right um but because they're small paragraphs having such a large indent it makes it really obvious
1: yep that's that's for sure uh That's for sure. True. Um, so we start off with travel, um, and well, time gets, Oh, sorry.
0: Go ahead. Well, I was going to say we start off actually with the time and you you were going there, obviously. Um, this is possibly the most important piece of the entire chapter. Yeah. Because if you don't use this part, then you might as well ignore the rest of the chapter.
1: Um, Right, and, and I do really like the idea of regarding the game in different scales of time for different needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so this shifts the game into exploration turns out of your six-second combat round into a, a four-hour exploration turn, um, so, this is the kind of thinking that is very necessary for a lot of uh, mass combat stuff, right? You can't have a good mass combat if the PCs are taking actions every six seconds. Right. Like, th- there's no way to put enough on the field to make that feel like a proper mass combat. Um, among well, other things, the-, the wizards will be out of spellcasting and just throwing cantrips all day and it it isn't actually interesting. So that's another situation where to get the feel right you want to change up the length of a single character's turn and maybe that doesn't feel sort of realistic Uh, why am I casting spells more slowly now because I'm in a field battle of some kind but you need to be thinking of it as narrative time,
0: mm-hmm. right? Right. Well, and and so this chapter isn't specifically about mass combat, so it's framed a different. It's framed slightly differently, right? No,
1: I, I'm just talking yeah. about the thinking about changing time right. unit.
0: Yeah, that 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 is an important aspect of the game whether you're running a, a mass combat or whether you're running a travel or whether you're running a whole days worth of activities like th- that is something you need to think about and you're making a very very good point. And it's not about whether you can suddenly suddenly it takes an hour to cast your spells, it's about well, that's not really what it is. It's just that within that mass combat moment of time within that time period, you're doing lots of other things. You're not just sitting there casting one spell and then waiting for three hours to pass and then casting one more spell. That's not really what it is. You have to sort of uh, contort the way that you're thinking about, or maybe contort is the wrong word. You have to transfer the way that you're thinking about time into a different mode. And that's exactly what they're asking you to do here in this book, is now think of time as four-hour chunks. Yep, exactly. Right, which also would work in a mass battle, although probably something shorter would also work. It's just that six seconds would be too short, right? And so what they've chosen here is a four-hour time band, which they label a watch, quote, it's a watch. And so in every day, there are six watches. And I just want to point out, um, because this is the Edition Wars podcast, I do want to point out that in the first edition AD&D DMG, when there's a section about adventuring in the outdoors, one of the things that is talked about is chances of encounters, right? Yep. And so, we're talking about wandering preachers and whatnot. But I just want to point out that when you check for encounters, there are six times during the day. There's morning, noon, evening, night, midnight, and pre-dawn. Yep. Those are your four-hour blocks. Those are your watches. And you're basically chunking up the day into these four-hour periods of time. So this idea goes way back to AD&D. It's just presented in a way that's, that's more applicable easily to fifth edition D&D. And it uses some new terminology that was not used uh, back then. I also want to point out that in the expert rules going way back before the 1E AD&D books were released. um, It also, of course, you know, talked about travel and time and uh, adventuring in the wilderness and all of these items that are on here. It talks about food. It talks about foraging. It talks about how long you can travel. It talks about what you're doing when you travel. It has a procedural way to move through the day, to make sure that all of the appropriate adventuring elements are, are covered or addressed. And that's kind of what this book is doing, which is why it feels very old school and it reads very old school, because it's kind of taking those elements that are directly back from the origins of the game, and it's bringing them up into the sort of modern ideal of what 5th edition can be if you want to run a game in this style. And setting these watch periods as four hours perfectly slots into that ideal, and so I think they hit the right tone with what they're with what they're going for here. Just to just to throw the edition wars uh, portion of this show back into the limelight here,
1: <laughs> right? And uh, just for you know uh, the high church denominations out there, the, these six hours are not canonical hours. That's a church joke. Thank you.
0: <laughs> if you had said it in Latin, maybe some more people would have gotten it.
1: <laughs> a disappointment to so many people. Most of all, my high school Latin teacher. <laughs> um,
0: so uh, so it t- basically they talk about um, thinking about your day now in these watches. And for these watches, these four-hour periods of time, the PCs have to decide what they're doing. And then you're presented with some choices. And it's not that this is an exhaustive list, it's just a, an example list of what you could be doing. And it, and it kind of uh, describes these a little bit. So let me just read them off to you real quick so that you can understand sort of what we're talking about. And you can think about how, oh yeah, well, it makes sense that each PC would be doing one of these things. Like that makes sense if they're traveling, they're going to be doing these things. They're not just walking like a zombie to their to get to their destination, right? They're doing things as they're traveling. So they could be um, keeping watch in terms of noticing threats. They're looking at the sky. They're looking at the ground. They're looking, depending on the terrain, they're looking for places where a creature might actually be hiding and watching them. Uh, they, they can be searching for something, a specific object or a specific location or some kind of markers or, or something like that. They can navigate, they can forage, they can be tracking a specific uh, creature or creatures and they could be drawing a map. And so, The idea is each PC is going to pick one of these, and that's what they're doing that entire four hours. And then there is either an associated check or there is a passive skill that will be uh, looked at in terms of seeing what they find or how successful they are at performing that activity for that segment of time for that watch. Yep. Um, And
1: I've seen other games that have very similar. Uh, exploration systems um, in terms of the jobs that you can perform. Um, This is if not identical to then recognizably similar to um, the One Ring first edition, which means it's also similar to Adventures in Middle Earth. Um, When we worked on uh, Talisman Fantasy Adventures, it's pretty similar in concept Um, and I mean, nothing's more of a travel log than talisman. That's for sure. <laughs> right.
2: Um, so it yeah.
1: does have
0: it does have this really important point that it makes though about helping. So if a if a PC wants to help another uh, PC do that task while they're traveling, then the person who's being assisted gets advantage. Mm-hmm. But um, that. Is all that other PC is doing is assisting that entire time. So, you know, right. to give this example, that if the cleric is going to cast guidance uh, to mm-hmm. assist, you know, a, a character performing whatever activity they're trying to perform, then that cleric—that's all they're doing that entire watch period.
1: Yep. So, so guidance is just literally worse than
0: assisting, right?
1: Right, because well, on average, I mean, guidance is not as good as uh, advantage, advantage.
0: right. yeah. Well, but if you if you're doing something very specific, you can have uh, someone assisting and someone doing guidance. Yep. And so you could stack those, right? But that's yep. three people that are now doing nothing but that one activity for the entire watch, right. right?
1: And and the one thing that can make this approach a little weird is that you've really got to decide how big of a party you want to treat as ideal mm-hmm. because probably it shouldn't be exponentially easier to travel with twice as many people. So you just hire a ton of NPCs. It's okay if that's what you want. That That's very old school friendly, right?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Look at all of, our, all of our hirelings. I've assigned them to use the help action on each of us for our, our, our exploration action. That's right. okay.
2: A little
0: mm-hmm. weird, maybe. Um, and you're going to be seen by ev- and heard by every creature <laughs> because there right. are now 20 of you instead of just five and, of you.
1: <laughs> and, and, and that's kind of the question, whether the rules engage with that and uphold it. Um, if you're using group checks for stealth, then maybe, maybe not. It, it kind of depends on whether the group's average role trends toward a success or trends toward a failure, right? Because right. you need to have a uh, number of successes equal to half the number of people in the group.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like getting 10 successes out of 21 characters might be pretty doable or might be, uh, oh, well, we, we trend toward failure, so we're going to fail because we have to roll that many times. I don't know, right? But it's one of the, the real um, challenge points around designing this kind of play that, uh, you know, I haven't seen resolved so far. We'll see what this book has to, has to contribute to the discussion, right?
0: yeah, I mean, I know how I would resolve it. I don't mm-hmm. know uh I don't know what this book is gonna say about that as of yet. Um, you know the, the the so so one of the other things about old school, so I, I talked about first edition a D and d before. Uh-huh. so if you if you look at that, um when there is an encounter in the wilderness, right, then you have an encounter distance. Right. It's, it's, it's not that, Oh, there's an encounter that things right in front of you. Like what might happen in a dungeon, you walk into a room and there's a creature in there or you know you're walking down the passageway and there was a creature waiting for you to get to the intersection so it could attack you right that's right there in your face but when you're in the wilderness you know your distance that you can see is depending on conditions relatively far much farther than in a dungeon so sure. so there's an encounter distance calculation that has to happen and it it it's affected by you know the the, the terrain but it this this creature that you're seeing or this this whatever it is that you're seeing can be very far away. And at that point, the group would be saying, even if they've got 20 people, they would be, you know, holding up their hand signals and telling everybody to shut the hell up because we just saw something dangerous and we need to hide, make a plan and figure out if we're going to try to sneak up on this thing. And then it's not 20 people sort of bumbling down the path, running into yep. the, you know, into the owlbear nest, so to speak. Right. right. Um, and because distance is, is matters in this case.
1: Right. And encounter distance within 5e is s- semi famously a table found only in particular DM screens.
2: <laughs> right. Didn't make
1: it in a DMG for,
0: you know, reasons. reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So so and that's, you know. Yeah. So anyway, so, but back to that. Yeah. So I, I don't know how well that's supported by this book yet. Right. I don't know that that entire you know idea of having that many hirelings or henchmen yeah. and, and being able to deal with that and what advice it gives. But, you know, this book is so far really good at giving advice about the things that they're saying. They're giving advice to the reader. And so presumably if we get to the point where they talk about those things, it's going to give us some advice about that as well. Yeah.
1: Um, so we get to travel pace and uh, that's. This is fairly bog standard, but the thing about fast pace, normal pace, and slow pace is going to have a, a big effect on your exploration turn. Mm-hmm. Um, fast pace blocks out a couple of actions, mm-hmm. right? Um, normal pace, of course, does nothing like you'd expect. Right. Uh, and then slow pace grants a, a plus five bonus bonus To wisdom survival, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Especially if you uh, don't have someone who's proficient and they need to fill that job, that's amazing.
2: Right. Right.
0: And and while it does reprint the sort of just distance per hour table from from the DMG, it also puts that into watch terms, right? Because remember, it's going for this whole idea of. Here's this time point. This 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 band of time is very important. So here it is, and here's how to apply it to this, which is a nice touch, you know, rather than making the reader have to think about it and do the math. The math no, is not I, I really like that. Yeah. I the math is not difficult, smart. but but it's at least telling us, okay, we care enough about presenting this idea to you that we're making it easy for you to use it as well.
1: Uh, and it's really only converting down from per day, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, now, for sure. The the only thing about this that is maybe not ideal is that it assumes everyone in the party has the base movement speed
0: right sure yeah um, which is fine. It's uh, kind of fine
1: except that it it seems completely reasonable to me in um, a game based on the West marches mm-hmm. that you might all have mounts.
0: Right. sure yeah 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 yeah
1: or something right that that's true what would need you to start getting real strange with this table and just completely write your own table mm-hmm. i i actually don't think I'm being unreasonable in asking for um, at least a note on how to quickly handle the math of converting between movement speeds
0: yeah i, I maybe, don't think- maybe i am and
1: I don't know maybe no. it's more- complicated I, i'm seeing but
0: yeah. no i i i think that they should they should have another column on this table that says you know uh standard mount and then they could have a sentence that says you know standard mount we're oh. talking about a horse or a pony and you know it's it's movement is this so if you're going to say that the movement is higher you're going to have to adjust this table and that's that's fine like having that would be nice i agree and they also talk about the, the standard um you know if you Travel for more than eight hours. Now you you have to uh, you know uh, roll Constitution save uh, because you're going to um, possibly get exhausted. Um, And it reminds me that fifth edition is so much more forgiving than earlier editions Um, because in Basic every for every every if you traveled for five days you had to rest the entire sixth day even if you were on horseback
1: um no, no,
0: no. and if you had a f- day of forced march where you you could double your distance that you traveled because you're tr- or whatever because you're traveling that much farther but then the whole next day had to be full rest <laughs> right because that's how difficult it is to ha- maintain that pace because that pace is extremely right is extremely difficult to maintain right? And yeah. so there's actually a calculation in first edition D&D that to, to figure out how, how long you can force march. But it's a lot rougher on the PCs as a group than than 5th edition is. But 5th edition can still get pretty dicey. I mean, if you're, if you're traveling and you want to travel three more hours beyond, let's say you decide, oh, well, we want to get real close to that thing so that we can rest and then wake up and do what we're going to do instead of having to travel again in the morning. We're going to travel three more hours. Three more hours means you have to make three con saves. The first one's at... DC 11. The next one's at DC 12. The next one's at DC 13. Well, that doesn't sound so bad, but it only takes one or two people to fail that, to suddenly be in a situation where, oh crap, right? Now we have exhaustion. If something happens before we get to finish our long rest, that could be very bad for that PC.
2: Right. Right. Or if, if,
0: if there's an encounter that requires that PC's skills, then we're kind of, off the boat now right
1: right and, and my my feeling on exhaustion is just that that very first exhaustion stage is too harsh to really keep going with and expect to have fun it's it, it feels too bad for what for how easy it is to get one level of exhaustion
0: mm-hmm. well um, and think about it like this if you rolled if you rolled and you failed two of these and you traveled three extra hours and you failed two of the rolls now you got two levels of exhaustion
1: yeah i mean just forget about it yeah and, and that's actually the problem right uh it's probably a little more interesting if pcs can feel like they like they can get themselves into hotter water without being like well we, we just have to stop now because we can't have any fun mm-hmm. and it, i don't know it's one of those balancing consequences against um Proceeding with the adventure, kinds of moments. Right. Um, that's just really tough in D and D. Like it's why lingering injuries are not very popular. Ultimately, you see a lot of people propose a lingering injuries rule because they want like, getting hurt or getting knocked to zero hit points to stick with the character longer than it does, but. Like, ultimately those tend to wind up not sticking just because people want to move on with the adventure and the the amount of time you need to stop and do nothing doesn't feel great mm-hmm. in the narrative. It winds up just being really hard to design. Yeah. I'm not saying people shouldn't keep trying. I'm not saying there might not be a great one out there. I haven't seen, but I'm saying that is why it isn't an official rule it's it's an official variant that doesn't see a lot of use
0: yeah right and I mean I get what you're saying about exhaustion but I mean i like in my rhyme game there were times when yeah. you know two out of the five pcs had two levels of exhaustion
1: right and uh, you know in in rhyme like, things are supposed to feel overwhelming and near impossible a lot of the time i think
0: right Yeah. But that's, that's where I'm going with this though, is it's, it's, it's very much a thematic thing, right? Like having exhaustion and having to deal with exhaustion is extremely thematic and appropriate to certain situations. And that is something that you have to figure out if you want to deal with, if you're going to run a game like the Swiss marches game. Yep. Right. Because if travel is going to be such a big deal, right. Then you need to let the PCs and let the players know ahead of time, look, exhaustion is not so easy to to deal with or get rid of as you think. And there are lots of things that can cause you to have exhaustion as a state of being. And that's going to have extreme mechanical repercussions in some cases. So you have to be okay with that, or you have to be okay with making choices that Allows you to resolve those exhaustion mechanics versus fighting against them or, or move fighting to move forward with the exhaustion, and that's a that's sort of that's kind of uh, very old school to have to think about. Okay, well, where do I cut my losses, right? And where do I make the decision to keep pushing on? Like that's a very brutal way to think about the travel in this game. Is if you're traveling with two levels of exhaustion, first of all, second level of exhaustion halves your speed. So now, instead of like in my example, I said, if you want to go three extra hours, well, if on that second check, somebody, you know, gets a second level of exhaustion, now everybody's speed is halved because, you know, the party only moves at the speed of the slowest mover. they are not going to leave that one person behind, especially with two levels of, right? So that actually has a, you know, it's that whole death spiral idea, right? It has a, a sort of snowballing effect that now affects everybody. And now it might make the whole group change their decision. and. I can entirely see where some players would really be irritated at that sort of turn of events right
1: yeah and and ultimately, my only point is I think they should have uh, low balled uh exhaustion one and maybe exhaustion two mm-hmm. right Th- that's that's about it um yeah especially because the thing that gets you exhaustion the most other than being a berserker barbarian star guys uh, <laughs> is exploration where you need the skills so badly so you wind up in right. a, a pretty recursive situation yeah right
0: well uh, so I'm gonna bring I'm gonna bring us back to this when we get to the next page about sleeping and their yep. sidebar about sleeping
1: yep yeah um, I mean, I, I really appreciate that they have a, a full half page on shelter and sleeping.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I think that's very cool. Um, I would just like to say maybe you don't want Leoman's Tiny Hut in your West Marches game.
0: Right. Right. And that's and that's the thing, right? So, so this is where we go to the side. So it gives you um, – it, it basically lays out this idea that for a PC in the world – To have a decent night's rest during a long rest, during the mechanical long rest, they need to have warmth, they need to have uh, food, right? And they need to have uh, comfort, basically, right? So you got to have warmth, you got to not be wet, and you can't be exposed to the rain, wind, or snow, and you need to be able to sleep for a significant amount of time. Right. And so it lays out all these things and it talks about the uh, consequences of not having these. And and then it points out, well, look, you know, um, they need a tent. That's their shelter. They need a bedroll. That's their comfort. And they need to be able to have a fire or heat source of some amount. And that's relatively easy when the group is camping. So it's really super simple to get these things because you can get them and and you shouldn't even have to make a saving throw if you have those things and their point here is that the reason why there's such nitty-gritty rules about warmth wetness exposure and sleeping during a rest is that yeah 99% of the time everybody has their adventures pack, their explorers kit or whatever that has the bed roll in it. It has a blanket in it. It has tinderbox and, and Flint and steel or some other way to start a fire. It's got all the elements that you need in order to have those things very easy at your hand. But it's that one time when they don't have it that makes the difference. And that's the one time where it can become a memorable event in the campaign. And, I would posit to you that that's the time when the travel pace thing occurs as well. Right. Sure. And that, and so the choice to risk the exhaustion is worth it in that case, because it's like the one time where it matters.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I ultimately really like the paragraph of free traditional conditioning characters does not satisfy DC increases by five. And so Mm -hmm. like,
0: well, and you get an extra level of exhaustion, right? So it's not just one now; it's two. Yeah,
1: that just that just sells the like um, tough it out concept to me nicely, mm-hmm. of yeah. like the uh, the hardest characters actually can maybe ignore some of the bad stuff. Here's where I need to point out that Rangers don't have Constitution as, as a saving throw, and that's weird right now mm-hmm. because this is the thing they should be able to do, right? And and, I think that that there's a lot of this that needs to, like, I would need to go over Natural Explorer with a fine-tooth comb to figure out if I liked how it intersected with this. Um, My ranger in Tomb of Annihilation is playing with all of the Tasha's variants turned on. Mm -hmm. So I don't have Natural Explorer and I'm glad because natural explorers sort of makes the front half of the adventure too easy and then stops working for the actually dangerous right. part.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks.
2: Um, yeah.
0: Well, anyway. So, yeah. I mean, so that, that all I, is want to say concerning, is I think this right? is cool. Yeah. 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 That, that is where this is where I wish they would give advice and, and they might do it earlier on. And I just don't remember because it's been a minute since we recorded, but yeah, um, it, 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 this is one of those areas where the DM should really know the PCs that they have playing in their game, at yeah. least a little bit, right? Like even just having one list of who's got you know who has con as a as a proficient save. It's yeah. going to be a short list because not very many people have it, right? Um, but you would then know. And so you would know how important this is, right? That that's something that needs to be paid attention to. Same with uh, anybody with a good tracking skill or, or, or all those. It actually mentions those. Hey, look, if you have this, if you have a character with keen mind, right? Like here's what they, they just, they'll auto save this or they'll, they'll auto succeed on this or, or whatever, right? It mentions those things. It doesn't really talk about what do you do about a character that doesn't have con as a proficient save, but they're making these con saves all the time
1: yeah I mean, the outcome in the rules is pretty clear.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, it really just what this says to me is, Rangers, you should buy resilient constitution. Just just do it. Right. it you'll thank me later. Yeah. It, in like five more levels, you'll thank me. <laughs> uh, by the way, that's just a good idea, guys. Resilient con is an amazing feat. <laughs> Let's
0: move on. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I got one other thing to say about this. Yeah. Um, that so here's this example that they give. If a character is both cold and exposed, that means they've got two, two of these sort of three or four elements that are really going to affect them. If they're both cold and exposed to the wind during their rest, the DC is not a 10 anymore, it's now a 15 because they've got two elements. And if they fail it, they suffer two levels of exhaustion. This is Perfect for something like Rime of the Frostmaiden. Yep. And one of my complaints about Rime of the Frostmaiden is that based on the simple 5e rules for harsh weather conditions, they basically hand-waved all of the wintertime effects by saying, oh, well, if they get cold weather gear for 50 gold pieces, they don't have to worry about those. Right yeah, I mean, not quite. i'm I'm a little bit exaggerating, but basically that's what it uh, is.,
1: you're not much exaggerating. That's so, that's about right.
0: yeah. so so the thing is, like that's okay, I guess. But yeah. for me, since the entire book was about this winter encrusted, horrible apocalyptic snow event, shouldn't it have mattered more like that was that was my that was my thing so because guess, they they went with the, the basic dmg rules about cold weather it didn't really matter that i mean i made it matter in my game but this would have been per, a perfect rule that would make it matter right this kind of thing here um, yeah
2: like
1: i think what you want is the the really Hard bitten valley forge kind of feel, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Right,
1: and I think it's a little strange, like because I'm playing in Tomb of Annihilation mm-hmm. and we aren't playing with meat grinder mode on, mm-hmm. but um, I think it's weird to me that Rhyme didn't have an optional, uh, you know, life in the freezer mode. Hmm. Uh, fr- Fridge your PCs, they'd call it. Fr- Fridge your PCs. Yeah.
0: I mean, I. So I don't want to feel like I'm critiquing the adventure too hard because it still is one of my favorite adventures, uh, despite the really harsh critiques that it gets from from a lot of other people. But, um, you know, I. It's one of those things where I think that they came to the conclusion that it was so. Um. It it had so many sort of harsh, depressing, isolationist elements already that they didn't want to push that too hard. I think they they wanted they still wanted PCs to be these super heroic uh, individuals that were able to rise above the horrible winter time and sacrifices and like all of these horrible things that are going on and still be heroic and be uh, an heroic force in Icewind Dale. And I get that. I get that. Um, But to me, it wasn't billed as that. It was billed as almost a horror adventure with elements of isolation and, and cruelty and, you know, all of these horrible things. And then it, it didn't quite live up to it because they soft pedaled a couple of those issues, right? Yep. Um, whereas, you know, to get back to this book, you know, this this half, this is a half a page. Well, of course, it's in tiny font, maybe be a whole page if it was in good size font. So right. one extra page in Rhyme of the Frost. Hey, get rid of that flow chart, which is not a flow chart, but just a straight line in Rhyme of the Frost Main and replace that page with this, and it'd be perfect.
1: There you go. I mean, they're already reprinting the Necessary rules from the DMG anyway. So right. Whatever. Exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. So so let's set up tracking. Right. Um, what what we have here for tracking really is pretty much the DMG reprint. Like I said earlier, uh, it incorporates the adjustments for slow pace, fast pace traveling, which should have been um, in in the DMG tracking chart anyway, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they just skipped it. Right. This is a perfectly wonderful table. Um, when we've talked about tracking rules in the past, and in my articles when I've talked about tracking rules, it really does always come down to either a percentage or a percentage modifier or numerical modifiers on difficulty of tracking. And that this is at least a nice and tidy one. You know,
2: mm-hmm. you're yeah.
1: not looking at a table that's half of, um, a quarter page long to get all that out, as I think might be the case in the first ed DMG, if I recall correctly, this massive table of plus one <laughs> and plus two percent modifiers. Yeah. No, thank yeah. you. I so mean, it's, this it's is
0: not fun. simple for sure. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but there's, you know... Yeah, well, we, yeah, I, I feel like oh. I, 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 there's nothing special about this table and this section, but it fits True. so perfectly into what they're talking about, it's necessary. You, you know what I mean? Like, I don't have uh-huh. anything bad to say about it. Um, right. Um, it, it, again, in the effort of putting everything in the same, you know, in one source, it's perfect.
1: Right. And, you know, they haven't tried to include modifiers for things like, oh, it was like 30 people and they all had horses. And right. so they turned up the earth. There right. was a battle here, all that kind of stuff. On the other yeah. hand, you know what the modifier is be because there's only one kind of modifier. It's five.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> right.
1: Five up, five down. Yeah. Just whichever direction that DC should go, do it. Yep. And yeah. that's fine.
0: Yeah. Um, and then they talk about navigation,
1: and, and, and this is a big one for West mm-hmm, marches, right? And I find this really interesting. In no small part because I'm now playing uh, the the new From Software game that everyone's hearing about. It's Elden Ring. Elden
0: Ring, yeah.
1: Right, <laughs> and navigation is a huge part of that game. I play Breath of the Wild. Navigation is navigation is a huge part of that game. They give you. Uh, kind of cheat sheet maps and navigation is still a huge and kind of difficult part of the game. Uh, so yeah. Yep. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, and uh, most of this is actually tips <laughs> on how to train your players to try to give you the right type of navigational instructions rather than you know so the the issue is if they say oh i i want to go to uh the example they give i will i want to go to the crypt we went to yesterday and just the hand wave that they that they know how to get there and their point is well you know memories are faulty and sometimes weather changes things and sometimes you know you feel like it was easy to find someplace, but it might not be so easy next time. And so you can't just say, I want to go back to that place I was yesterday, if it's miles and miles away. Right. Yep. And you can't necessarily see it from where you are. So they talk about visibility and how, how large something has to be to be able to see it from more than, you know, a couple miles away and just things like that. It's really good information. Um, and I, I understand why they're giving this information because I do think that that groups a lot of time devolve into the, well, we're just going to go back to the entrance of the tomb, right? We were there just yesterday. Yep. We're just going to go back to that same place because it's easy to do that, right? And it feels like it makes sense. Oh, well, we're big hero adventurers. We're going to go there. Except that's not really how a Westmarch's game works, right? The travel is part of the adventure. And so, if you just say, I'm going to that thing, you're making it so that it's harder to adjudicate things like whether someone gets lost or if the weather affects something or if the terrain has changed at all and you notice it or don't notice it or things like that. It's harder to do those if you just shortcut it all and say, well, we're going back to the entrance of the tomb.
1: Right. And I think that that's a big culture shift, right? Mm -hmm. I, I don't. Blame the players who give their GM the hairy eyeball the first time the GM, you know, responds with "Okay, how? Mm -hmm. Tell me how." Um, Like I don't know. We're in the Tomb of the Nine Gods and the Tomb of Annihilation campaign now, and the way the GM needs to run it to make it work in an online format we're not mapping by hand. that's not reasonable right um, He's sharing the maps and erasing a fog of war layer that he's put on it as we mm-hmm. explore
2: right
1: So we're not getting that level of exploration. It's not what we're looking for so that's fine. Right. but you know if uh, if I had to navigate like if in the next session, I had to make it back to the entrance which is a whole level up without the aid of any of the maps i give myself about a 50 50 shot of getting it right um because i did get to actually look at it uh top down so i guess the other thing i want to say in defense of players who get a little exasperated with the gm responding okay tell me how is just your spatial awareness in verbal description has nothing in common with your spatial awareness in physical passage. Right. So that, that that's good cause for maybe some intelligence checks or saving throws to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, my, my touchstone on this I'm getting way off topic, even for me. Man, no, it's fine. Go ahead.
0: My that's what we do. This, Brandis, that's it, it's what we true. do.
1: So so my touchstone for this is, of all things, the city of Venice. So mm-hmm. um, I'm in Venice with my wonderful wife, Rabbit, on our honeymoon. And uh, I discover, having never been to Venice before, that I can intuitively navigate my way around Venice by remembering roughly where I am in relation to the Grand Canal.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I can look at a map of, of Venice that is a not-really-to-scale sort of postcard sketch and use that to pretty successfully make it to the Basilica di San Marco from our, um, from our hotel consistently. And that's a little strange, but it worked. So, okay. Um, And then I can make it back to the hotel after that. And it's all just based on the physical experience of where my feet are taking me. Mm -hmm. Being different from someone trying to describe the twists and turns of the Venetian Canal and alleyways. Right. Right? So I guess what I would say is Players understand that the DM is trying to challenge you. DM understand that the players are not physically there. They're doing their best with what you said out loud with your voice maybe uh, one to six weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So players, you're you're there to be challenged. DM, you're there to be generous. Just don't, don't be nasty about it. Because... The character should have something that the players can't have. So, what, so check your realism is what I guess I want to say.
0: Well, I mean, I don't disagree with you, um, but I will say that navigating your way through a city with a long form landmark like the canal yeah. and human created buildings well, that so so I want
1: to I want to be clear. I couldn't see the canal from where I was walking. Sure, I was just pretty clear of how far I was from it.
0: Sure, but and 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 I get that. But I guess what I'm saying is, in a dungeon, though, it's a a dungeon doesn't necessarily provoke the same type of kind of knowledge. But I I do I do agree with you that it would provoke a better knowledge than what the players sitting at the table have because of the DM's description, right? Yeah. I think it's somewhere in the middle there. I think that a, a dungeon or a crypt or a cave system or something as a foreign entity that, although I guess you could also make the case, well, these PCs, this is what they do. They're adventurers. They go to this type of place all the time. So they've gotten used to this, but I I will then point out to you how easy it is to get lost in the forest. Sure. Right. Sure. Um, so,
1: and the question is just: Does the look of the walls repeat in a sufficiently blank way that it does to your mind what trees do? Right. Right.
0: Um,
2: uh,
1: right. But you know,
0: and in some I, I'm cases, playing the ranger
1: they- that just bought Dungeon Delver as right. my eighth level feat.
0: <laughs> so, right. but but. But I will, I will, I will grant you that in some cases the answer is yes. the the, yep. the walls do have that effect, and in some cases it's no. And I think, yep. I think for dungeons it's a little more variable. I think for wilderness, unless you grew up in those woods and you've been around those woods for a large amount of time, woods are hard. Woods sure. are, because yep. our our I'm not you know as a human. Your brain starts to filter out things that look the same, right? It sort of blurs. And that's because you want to notice things that don't look the same. You notice differences and changes. And you you will notice if there seems to be a pattern of those. In fact, your brain will make up a pattern of those if it can and it'll convince you there's a pattern. But the
1: the way we DM it reflects that, right? Right. Because exactly. In the wilderness, the DM does not say, you want to go back there? Tell me how. Because like Even in the DM's description, man, it's all just trees.
0: Right. But here we do that. So we're getting back to this book though, right? Here we do say that. The DM does say that because we're not allowing you to just point at the map and say, I want to go back to the town.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. But, you know, they're assuming you have landmarks to navigate by.
0: Absolutely. uh, Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. And, and that you can see those and that's, that's kind of where it starts, right? Is if you want to use landmarks or you want to use cardinal directions, like this is where that keen, keen senses or whatever that, uh, whatever that talent is keen mind mind. Uh, where, okay, you can always know directionality. So if you know that the landmark is generally north of you that you want to see, even if there's a blanket of fog and you can't see it and you say, I want to go north and you have that talent, you go north right? As if you had a compass that was working, you just go north. Um, and this book allows for that, right? Until you can get to the point where you can actually see the landmark, then you could say, I'm going towards that landmark because I can see it. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of their point they're making though, is that if you only, if you allow for a sort of looser interpretation of what's happening, it's, it, it's, um, it lessens the effect of the danger of just traveling right and yeah. the danger of getting lost and of course getting lost is the whole next section and the whole idea is if they just say i'm going that way to that to that crypt we were just at yesterday well then how do you explain that they got lost if they knew exactly where they were going right like that's where the oh, difference sure. comes, sure. comes from
1: right and and i am agreeing people get lost in the woods for sure mm-hmm. um, i guess like not having played a, a, a proper West Marches style campaign, I think that the secondary lesson here is to teach the DM how to lean into landmark description mm-hmm. so that the PCs have something to work on. Right. Right. Because it would be so easy to say, oh, you don't have any landmarks to go back there, but you didn't give them any.
0: Right. Right. Well, and that's where the crypt
1: was their landmark. Right. How was that supposed to work?
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's where. And that's that's kind of why I'm harping on this, though. Right. Is because I'm not sure they do a good enough explanation in this. They really try, and I get it immediately because I understand this style of wilderness exploration. But I'm not sure for a person who's only been exposed to sort of modern D and D that they'll understand why it's important to not let them just say, "I want to go back to the crypt we were at yesterday." because right because of that idea and and i think at the beginning of this they tried to talk about how the map is really important in in the beginning of this book i mean they talk about why the map is so important and what the regions are and all that so that the dm can give them those landmarks okay i'm going to travel so that the mountain range is always on my right side because that's how i know i'm going north perfect you can go north without problem yep right but If you're in a situation where you can't see those mountains, then what do you do? Right. And if the DM didn't give you a single other landmark, then what do you do? So I totally agree with you. Like that, but that's what's hard about this. It doesn't really say you have to give them the landmarks, it just says, don't let them just say, I'm going back where I was yesterday.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned Elden Ring and Breath of the Wild those are great games to go to. If you need to see what this looks like so that you can turn around, and describe it to your players. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. cannot recommend them strongly enough for just helping to conceptualize space in an interesting, memorable way that honestly the real world isn't like, you know, yeah. uh, the, in most of the places that you go real, the real terrain, isn't that dramatic. Um, there are definitely places to get an exception. Uh, I do want to hear about them. I love I love that kind of thing, but most of the world isn't like that. Right. I, right. I've backpacked across a lot of the south of Ireland. Uh, it's beautiful, but not um, oh, dramatic and memorable mm. in that way. Right. Thank God for paths. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Right.
1: We're going to follow this path until we get there.
0: Cool. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Excellent.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, The one other thing I want to say about getting lost is that I love the slightly lost, significantly lost uh, separation because I remember when we covered the second ed DMG, lost and Hopelessly lost.
0: Right. <laughs> right. 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 Which yeah. is
1: clearly what they mean here.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Even if they're kind enough not to say it that way.
0: Well, and here, so here's the thing. So again, I have to go back to the older editions. You know, in the older editions, the DM was the one who rolled to see if the party got lost. Right. Yep. And this is one of those cases where, so here's how this works. Uh, whoever's navigating, if somebody is navigating. I, I presume if nobody was navigating, the DM is the one rolling. But uh, if, the, if there's a navigator, which presumably there is, and it assumes there is, one of the PCs, their entire job for that watch is to navigate. Then if they, if they roll and they succeed against whatever DC is set, then everything's fine. If they fail, then you become slightly lost. If they fail by more than five, then they become significantly lost. But here's the thing. They'll know because they know what they rolled sure so the idea here so in the older editions right in basic and first and second edition uh, at least in first edition um the dm rolled and so the party didn't know if they were lost they would still continue mapping the wilderness as if they weren't lost so if they thought they went north they would map the northern next northern hex Mm-hmm. but they actually had turned and then they might not figure it out until later. Right. And and that's okay. That's part of that, that sort of, you know, hex crawl milieu, right. That that's part of the game. And yep. I understand some people might not find that fun and some people do, and that's fine. So this isn't a statement about that or not, but in this case, what it means is the person who rolled their navigation check knows how lost you got. Yeah. So The idea is that the DM then is the one who rolls for the new direction and doesn't tell the players. They'll just suddenly have a sense that they're lost. But remember, here's where the timing comes in. They roll during that watch for the whole watch. So by the time they roll, it's like the end of the four hours. That's when they learn they got lost. Right? So, So my initial, when I was first reading this, I was like, oh man, but the player rolls. So they know they're lost. So that doesn't really work, but it does because they're rolling at the end of the watch or they're discovering it at the end of the watch that they got lost and they don't know what direction, how far off they are, but this is why getting lost is right after the navigation section, because if they said something like, I want to always go north or I want to keep the mountain range on my right-hand side, now they can look around and try to figure out how off-direction they are. And they may or may not succeed. Unfortunately, the book doesn't give you any hints or advice on how to deal with the players who now are trying to find their way back, right? and that's yep. where i think this this could use another paragraph to talk about you know okay yeah. what do we do when when the party gets lost and the pcs are now freaking out cuz they just realize they're lost they've been traveling in the wrong direction for 4 hours now they're oh. frustrated and what do you do
1: right and and i think it remains incumbent on the dm to keep explaining what they see
0: mm-hmm, and mm-hmm.
1: as much as anything just we have now seen something that should not be here
2: Right. We th- and that's how that, we figured, that's out, how we we figured out we're lost yep, exactly. and
1: how we got back on track is this book's concept.
2: Mm-hmm. That
1: is a brutal workload on the DM. This book would say you signed up for it because it's a little unsympathetic to the DM at times like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But right. yeah, I, I hear what you're saying for sure.
0: But but I'm, I'm now going to go back to what you were saying a minute ago that if – uh, if the DM isn't giving the party enough landmarks yep, and 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 giving them sort of the, the through the eyes of the PC's view of, you know, look, if this DM just says, well, you're in some rolling hills. Well, BFD, like that helps us. Right. No, no way. That doesn't help us at all. Okay, we're in the hilly terrain. Big deal. That, that's and that's not absolutely where the
1: visibility section talking about. Right. How far you can see mm-hmm. when your when your visibility position is x distance above surrounding terrain becomes everything right. Like it, right. it's talking about um, let's see uh, a mountain range rising eight thousand feet above the surrounding land would be visible from 80 to 85 miles away. Mm-hmm. That's that is a mess of hexes right on. Almost any hex scale that you'd ever consider using for the West marches.
0: But typically you can only see three miles. Right. For things that are at your size at, at your, right. If you, if, you if you're just slightly elevated,
1: but the thing is
0: like, but you've got
1: levitate pretty early.
0: Right. Right. Here's where, here's where I just wish that it had given some, you know, some examples of here's how you need to describe it. Look, you need to say, okay, you see the forest. You can see the forest, you see the canopy, but it's more than three miles away. It looks to be to the Northwest. You see the mountain range. It's always on the directly West side or directly East side of you or something, right? You see that there is a river that runs roughly East West, and it's a couple miles in front of you. Like that's the type of thing that the DM needs to be giving them all the time. Plus other smaller details and if you're not giving that every time there's a watch and the, or every time they stop during the watch to check right if they stop and they climb a tree to get a better vantage and they check you got to be telling them everything so i agree yep. it's it's a big burden on the dm but you're right i mean this is this is how it used to be just normal right yep in 5th edition this is kind of an add on but this is this is how it was supposed to be previously all the time yep so anyway so then we get to weather Unless you had anything else about
1: no universe. no I'm sorry okay. let's do weather
0: so there's an error in this section I don't know if it has been fixed in the PDF but in their example it threw me off uh, for a, a while but so basically they talk, they they provide um, three elements of weather okay they're uh-huh, talking about uh-huh. precipitation they're talking about wind speed and they're talking about temperature and then they have a little section on how those three things interact right. And so basically, uh, you you can figure out the 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 weather for per watch, but understand that it might change in the middle of a watch depending on how you're running your game. But if you if you do it at the end of every watch, you roll to see if the weather looks like it's going to change, and so you roll a d20. And if you had it has this little table, and it says, oh, if you have clear skies, you roll a d20. If you if you roll a one to sixteen, you keep the clear skies. If you roll a seventeen to nineteen, you have light precipitation. And if you roll a 20, suddenly it starts raining really heavily. Now, if sure. you started out at light precipitation, the, the table is different, right? The numbers are different for the, whatever. You roll. But then it gives this example. It says, okay, so um, it says uh, at, at noon, the, the GM rolls for one of the watches and it they rolled a 17 and it had been clear skies. So, so now it starts with a light precipitation. And then it says on the next watch. It's lightly precipitous. So if the GM rolls another 17, it's now heavy precipitation, except that's not what the table says. The table says if it's light precipitation and you roll a 17, it's still light precipitation. You have to roll an 18 to get heavy. So I don't know if that was an oversight or if they changed the numbers because they were finagling the numbers and trying to figure out what fit best or whatnot. But um. It's one of those things where sometimes I read so much detailed stuff that it threw me off. And I thought, that's not right. Am I reading this table wrong? And then I was trying to read the table starting with the top of the columns instead of starting to the left-hand side. And oh, it was, it was I think I was tired, but <laughs> either way it was, it was very odd. So there's a, there's a couple of slight typos here. Um, but if you can get past those, there's actually really good information. It also tells you what, to expect from a situation where there's light rain or light snow, heavy rain or heavy snow. And then talks about the effect of wind speed and then the combination of those things. If there's a storm. And I just want to point out that if there's a storm, that is, if there's, um, if there's uh, high winds and, you know, heavy precipitation, that storm makes everything heavily obscured. And let me just remind you that in fifth edition D and D heavily obscured, means that you are effectively blind. Yep. So you have suddenly now become saddled with the blinded condition because of the storm, right? And so all that to say, the idea here is weather is important, but it can still be very simple. This is only two pages and it's very simple, but it's pretty effective in terms of how to make it so that the weather during travel matters.
1: Yep. And this is definitely a case where uh, if you're dependent on fire as a light source, your life is much harder uh, for both precipitation and wind speed. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as dependent on fire for warmth, warmth. which right. many more characters are going to be mm-hmm. um, going back to that uh, uh, sleep conditions uh, right. set of rules. Um
2: Right. But, and uh, so
0: in other words, f- as they go through this chapter, they're kind of building on each part and saying, okay, now that you understand that, here's how to complicate it a little bit, or here's what might affect right. it. And so that, that, that moment that you were thinking, well, it's obvious, everybody's always going to have a bedroll and a fire and a tent to sleep in. Suddenly that's not the case. If it's a heavy storm, you ne- you can't see very far and you can't keep your fire lit.
1: Yeah. Um- and, you know, uh, I, think, I think there are plenty of PCs who would look at sort of, oh, it's just heavy rain. I can tough it out as their expectation. Mm-hmm. But this is much more sort of, yeah, yeah, there was heavy rain and the army stopped moving for a week. Right. Yeah, of course they did. Yeah. You, you can't travel like that. There's no way. Right. Right. The The horses and the carts. Stopped, hmm Right. Um, and I mean, this isn't even assuming that you um, are using horses and carts necessarily. Right. Though uh, the, the mention of keeping footing is definitely going to uh, affect horses.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Well, and okay, uh, let's go through a giant mud, muddy area with our big, heavy-ass cart. Right. Right. In the driving rain with a big it, wind.
1: This isn't calling that out, but.
0: Right. But it's implying it. See, and this is, again, where um, I want just one more paragraph. where, sure. Just like you did with the travel and the horses and the horse speed. Like, I want one more paragraph about, okay, also remember to take into account the things that they're traveling with. It's not just for people walking in regular clothing. Right? It's. Yep. For adventurers, and maybe maybe they have a cart. Maybe they all got horses. Maybe they've you know. But the horses don't necessarily make it easier. They might make it harder. If one of them is pulling a wagon, what do you do? Does the wagon get stuck? Now you're stuck in the driving rain, right? Yep. So it's those sorts of things. And they could have added one more paragraph to talk about that. Um, and I only say that because if this book is for people who play fifth edition, but who want something slightly different and they want to learn how to run a West marches game. If you're teaching them, you need to include those sorts of notes. Right. And they're so good with their other sidebars, but there's a couple of places in the book so far that I wish they would have just added one more.
1: Yep. I I feel you. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the writer though. It's it's hard to know.
0: Oh yeah. For sure.
1: Yeah, you've already believed the point enough. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, and
0: uh, I, I'm not trying to come off at, at harsh. No, uh, with no, I, harsh I, don't, I don't think you're yeah. being.
1: I don't think you're being cruel to them. Um, but the, the piece on heavy snow definitely calls to mind for me uh, why the fellowship thought a dungeon sounds nice. Let's go through a dungeon <laughs> instead.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, but just that intersection of precipitation and terrain is also interesting here.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Um, anyway, um, the the discussion of ha- hazardous weather is going to uh, pick back up later in the chapter. Uh, so yeah. I don't want to spend too much more time on it here.
0: Sure. Um, well, let me just say about the temperature, because I, I feel like I am coming off harsh on this, but, Uh, For example, in the visibility section where it talks about, you know, being able to see three miles and and in this temperature section here on this page where it talks about, you know, the average ranges and, you know, that it's going to get significantly colder at night. Even if you're in a nice warm area, it's going to get 20 to 30 degrees colder, right? Even in a desert, right? So if you go to a desert, it could get 30 to 40 degrees colder at night, depending on the situation, but maybe right. more. Yeah. Maybe more. And so are, are you I,
1: kidding? We had 30 to 40 degree temperature swings in Georgia. Right. I, within the past month. Yeah. Between exactly. highs and lows.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is insane. It's, um, yeah. yeah it's, it's rough. It's rough. But, but so I appreciate the sort of tiny pieces of information here that are just, they're presenting them as like a rule of thumb, but it really is helpful if you, you know, if you don't know anything really about weather other than just living life and living in a world with weather, but you have, if you haven't really thought about, well, what's the temperature change and what's the average and what would it be? This is a perfect little two or three paragraphs that gives you a great sort of entry into that. And you could make your own table, right. Of, of set based on how, what the, what month it is and, you know, what, what kind of temperature it's going to have on average. And then you, and then you've got it and it's done and they don't do it for you because they don't presume your setting. Right. But they give you enough to let you make it yourself, which I really appreciate.
1: Right on. Right on. So food and water. Yep. So I want to remind you that you are not running map fantasy if you don't have luxurious (laughs) descriptions of the food, but of course your your PCs are not eating that food. They're just aware of that food (laughs) in the town that they are leaving.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Um. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, uh, Mostly I have jokes about this section. The section is fine. My jokes are not digs at the section. (laughs) Just I get to the foraging section and all I can think is how you mine for fish because I play too many MMOs and how you mine yeah. for fish.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the decent information. Uh, it talks about how much food you have to eat per day and how much water you have to drink per day and what are the repercussions for not having that. Um, it talks about the cleanliness of food and water that you might forage. And, and there is actually a possibility for meat to be bad or, or uh, diseased or for water to not be clean, which is fine. Um, I, I it sort of hand waves that a little bit. It, it basically says, um, that, uh, uh, any, any water from, um, it says, a. uh, well, water, rainwater, water from a stream, a river, or a lake is safe to drink. And
1: that is. Not what we were taught in scouting, but so not
0: true. It's so not true. <laughs> um, and so but I wish this that... This comes from
1: a time before Giardia, right. okay?
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. I wish that that actually had a DC, but they're kind of hand-waving it. And I get why. Like They're trying to make it so that your foraging roll counts and you don't have to make a save even though your foraging roll was a good yes. one, right? Um, so right. I get that. Mechanically speaking, it's fine. Uh, it's just a little odd uh, for me. Um, but then it also is contradictory to what they say in the foraging section, where they say water collected while foraging generally has a higher risk of being unclean. So it has a cleanliness DC of 10. But then in the unclean water section, it says, ah, if you got it from a lake or a river, it's fine. So yeah, there, there's a little bit of discrepancy there. And I think it's up to the DM whether they want to uh, play hardball with that one or not. It's not that big of a deal. The DC is only 10, but you know, you roll a D20, it's swingy, right? Like you could, it yep. could be bad. Um, but yeah uh I mean you know it's fine. Uh you, you know the, the, the thing it brings to my mind uh, again um is you know in first edition uh AD&D you, you could get iron rations or you could get standard rations and iron rations were more expensive and they weren't as palatable they were more preserved and more like hardtack but they never spoiled right it yep. wouldn't spoil whereas if you took standard rations they're cheaper but they're going to spoil so you either you take a combination or you do something that makes it so that you're always going to have food. Um, and here there, you know, in fifth edition, there is no distinction between iron rations and standard rations. So I do That's a, one of those good old days things that I miss a little bit, because I think it makes sense that there's I, different food you can take.
1: So, so I agree with that, but I think the bookkeeping around the mm-hmm. expiry date on your standard rations yep. is enough of a nightmare that yeah that needs to be solved a different way.
0: Yeah. And 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 I I feel the same way about it as I feel about the cleanliness of water, right? Like you don't want to get too too much of it you don't want to be too much of a stickler about that. Yeah. Um because no, like you know you're you, just gonna slow the game down too much.
1: Yeah. But if you are running the kind of game, often not D specifically, but another fantasy adventure game that uses a resource die.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: yeah. so you you have different rules for the standard ration resource die than you do for the iron ration resource die, and right. the players need to, you know, decide when to start dipping into their iron ration resources. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking,
2: right? Yeah, um, but it's I mean, easy. the other
1: thing, yeah. yeah, yeah. But the other thing is that foraging in standard D anD D is hard to keep challenging because right. um, it's intended for the ranger to be able to feed the party. Right, And so it doesn't stay exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly it's been our experience in Doom of Annihilation. And then creative food and water comes along and just forget about it.
0: It's that that paradox, right? You give something that makes a PC really good at it. You give them a skill or some ability that makes them really good at something. But then because they're so good at it, you've removed the challenge and the excitement and and the necessity for that thing from the game. So they never get to shine. Precisely, and that—that's exactly what you're in danger of of doing uh, there with the iron rations versus the regular rations, and versus the foraging here versus water cleanliness and all that stuff. They do a good job of of presenting a balanced, really fifth edition feeling setup here, and it's fine. Um, yep, you know it's good for it's good for it's good <laughs> it, it's good for for fitting into this sort of whole setup because you don't want everything to be just hard, right? Some things have to be a little bit easier.
1: Sure. You just have to have changes in tone, for God's sake.
0: Right. Absolutely. For sure. Um,
1: But anyway, if these only come up every once in a while, I think you're on the right track. Mm -hmm. Um, But there needs to be some times when the PCs are out of everything and everything has gone to hell and they're trying to... Scratch by and what might be unclean food, so they can get back to the end of the mission and actually resupply. Right, for sure.
0: It's that same idea as this stuff doesn't really matter until it matters, right? It's yeah. that it's that same you know backpack with the bedroll and and the blanket and easy ability to get fire. None of that matters until it does.
1: Right, and and that's. I think the feel I'd want to go for, rather than this being constantly foregrounded, that that's Mm -hmm. a
2: little, a little rough. Yeah,
1: like even in the grittiest west marches, that's asking a lot. Right. Like, I guess if you're west doing west marches, Athos, okay, fine. But friends, (laughs) no, you're gonna die. Like you're gonna die uh, in the first session. Just no.
2: Yeah.
1: Um so that to me that gets me to the end of of that page anything mm-hmm. else you want to say about this
0: nope nope we can move on to surveying and hunting
1: yeah so um, let's see so oh surveying is pretty cool um,
0: yeah so so this is so one it's of those... just finding
1: out what's in the area right, right
0: right so this is one of those um you know you're you're surveying. As, as at, at, over the course of a watch. So you're surveying this whole time, right? And you're basically, this is just.
1: Nice. trying I really to like make the sure. use of intelligence nature here. That's very really right. strong.
0: Exactly. And you're just trying to make sure that you understand the lay of the land to the extent that you can in a short period of time. That's really what this is.
1: So what's fascinating about this is that um, this is something people often want to roll a tracking check for and would expect to use survival for. Right. Uh, and so this is a second table that has a lot of the things that I was talking about being absent from the tracking table, like creature size. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you're using a tracking-like idea to just find out what's here generally rather than to follow a specific path, then this is, this is for you and they want you to use intelligence nature. That's interesting. Um, I like it.
0: Right so the, you know the purpose of this is to to if you if you saw a little bit of evidence or you heard a rumor uh, that something's happening in the forest that's 2 miles north and so you go 2 miles north and you get near that forest now you want to look for evidence of whether that rumor was true or not Right, so you had you got a rumor that um, there's a uh, goblins in the forest. They've moved in and they're now infesting the forest. Well, now you need to do a survey. You need to check out that particular area for specific signs of a goblin, and it's going to take you a while. It's going to take you a whole watch because you're like an investigator. You're you're going to an area and it's like a like a crime scene investigator right you're looking for every single piece of evidence that can give you the most information possible so that you can approach this particular situation with all the information and make good choices right so that takes a long time and so that's what this the survey difficulty there's a nice survey difficulty table and that's that's kind of what this is going for It's really going for setting the party up so that when they see, they get a clue of something. It's almost like it reminds me of that encounter distance thing I was talking about earlier, where you see something, but it's far away. So as you get closer, now you switch your activities. Now you get closer, and now you start the surveying activity because you're no longer traveling, so you're no longer navigating, and you're no longer doing the things you were doing when you were traveling. Now, instead, you're looking for this goblin host, right? And that's that's what everything's focused on. I, it's this is this is a great section. I love this section. This fully fits in with everything that has come before it in this chapter.
1: I, I agree it's it's really cool. It's something I haven't actually seen a game cover this way before and it is exactly the right mindset. Uh, yeah. yeah for someone going into the the great unknown of West Marchs game. I really like that. yeah. Um, And then hunting uh, is, I mean, it does what it says in the tin. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's talking about harvesting quarry. Um, In a lot of ways, we're talking about both food and crafting. We haven't really covered crafting yet at all, but Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're going to be sort of touching on some of that here. Uh, It's just talking about units of material.
0: Right. Yeah. That's Uh, the unit that you get when you're harvesting your quarry is you're getting a unit of material. So you're not getting like one animal or three meals worth or whatever. You're getting basic or base units of material. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit abstracted out for good reason because it's not covering specific animals. It's covering every possible creature. Yep. At least it thinks it's covering every possible creature. (laughs)
1: Well, getting trying to uh, getting only five times as many units of material from a gargantuan creature as you get from a squirrel, is, beggars yeah. the mine, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. fine, whatever. I yes, mean, we can't. We can't let you have two hundred uh, right. units of material for this dragon. It's right. Just well, it's thing.
0: But some of it is like, how much could you really conceivably carry, and what do you take, and you know how right. h- how do you take it and you know that sort of thing so i think they're that's when i when i that's why i say like they're trying to cover everything but they've reduced it to an abstract base unit of material and so it's a little bit it's a little bit too abstract for me oh hey sorry the maximum number of units of harvestable material in a single monster
1: is equal to the listed amount plus 1 for every 5 cr of the creature so mm-hmm. it's a little a little more generous than i was granting it's still not you know 200 but right okay well like
0: an ancient like, black dragon is nine but uh, yeah uh, you know, so the thing the thing is like the idea is that this this unit of, i guess here's the thing the abstract nature of this is more like a ph scale and less like a linear line right the sure. difference between one and five is not four in this case it's maybe right. 100 right
1: Yeah, it, it, it's it's a log scale right, right. I, I agree with that
0: it doesn't really uh, make that clear, but that's, that's no. really what they're going for. Yeah. And that's fine. But I mean, my problem with it isn't the abstract nature. It's that it's, it, it, it um, it's great for fitting into a very quick and easy way to think about this. I wish uh, I wish they gave more advice on, on, yeah, I, I I don't I don't know I I like it, but I don't like it. There's something about it that's a little bit slightly too abstract for me, given what they've already done with so many detailed things. Um, but I get where they're going. It's it's well done. It's just not necessarily to my taste. But sure, the caveat it's, is, it's I not haven't really used it for you. That's fine. It, yeah, it's not hitting. I haven't used it though, so it's possible that I could do this and be like, holy crap, that's awesome, and it's super easy for me to do, and it's not. It has no, you know, because remember, every a lot of what we're talking about has a lot of DM overhead. This has almost no overhead in this case, right? It's very quick to figure it out. And then it's the PC's choice, what they do with it. So for me, that's the benefit, right? So we'll see. I, I give it a 50-50 there on whether I would really like it or not.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's definitely intended to fit together with surveying.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. Right. Yeah. And it does. Um, it does.
1: Yeah. I mean, I am going to have so many opinions on crafting in this book. You've all <laughs> been course. warned. Yes, many times you yeah. should know by now, uh, <laughs> and so this is one of the first big like uh, building blocks of that, right? Right. Uh, what I want to say about what they're showing you here is uh, because it's the West Marches. Knowledge of the land from surveying is. It's the ownership that there is. There is no ownership of land
2: mm. in the
1: West Marches. Mm. Right. So this is the ownership that's possible. And so when you need the thing because you want to make whatever, you have learned where to go um, because you surveyed. Right. You did your homework.
2: Mm. And
1: hunting is the payoff because crafting is the payoff.
2: Right. Right.
1: So th- that is… Uh, It's several steps removed, but I think it's the right number of steps removed to pay you for paying attention
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: and taking some time to do the scut work of understanding. I I appreciate that a lot.
0: Right. Yeah. No, it's good. Uh, And that brings us to the last section of this chapter, which is hazards.
1: Three pages on hazards
0: um so you know earlier on when it talked about um the weather and um and, and uh and and different time elements and 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 stuff like that it didn't really talk about uh terrain and barriers right or or things that could really affect other than like saying there's a light precipitation or heavy precipitation, it has these specific mechanical effects. They didn't really talk about, okay, let's go in detail and talk about these things. And that's what the hazard portion of this chapter does. It kind of comes back and wraps it all up in a nice little bow at the end by talking about, well, what do you really do in extreme cold and what do you really do in extreme heat? And what if there's a storm and what, what is there any mechanics about fog and what about a sandstorm if you're in a desert and what about frigid water and, uh, what about geysers and lava and rock slides and, and all of those sorts of things. And that's what it's talking about here.
1: So I do want to say that I think they, uh, contradicted themselves on, um, the cold, the, on the cold. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically is, yeah. for, sl- yeah. For, for exposure mm-hmm. around sleeping. Right. Um, and yeah, um, because here resistance to cold is enough. In mm-hmm. the previous section, you had to have immunity to get immunity. Right. Well, resistance this is ex- what's saving you.
0: This extreme cold is right from the DMG because this is yeah, what's so I, in I the it For sure. Yeah. For sure. And and it was reprinted in Rhyme of the Frostmane. And this is where, you know, uh if you're exposed to temperatures below zero, you make a DC 10 con saving throw where you suffer an exhaustion. If you have resistance or immunity, then you uh you basically automatically succeed. And if you have cold weather gear, you automatically succeed. That's the line that takes away all of the danger of the environment in Rime of the Frostmaiden, because you can buy cold weather gear for 50 gold. And that's basically nothing by the time you're second level.
1: And because there isn't a standard rules way for players to lose
0: gear. Right. Right. Right.
1: So like that was something that jumped out at me when I read, um, Dungeon World back in the day, mm-hmm. right? Uh, losing gear was a standard, recognized consequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could very plausibly have your cold weather gear just get shredded by a monster, mm-hmm. and that was the consequence of your bad role. Yeah. But that's on you.
0: Yeah. And, Ca- Castles and Crusades has equipment wastage, so uh, if uh, you are if your equipment is exposed to say acid or poison from a caustic mm, creature, yeah. Or uh, if it's, if it you were dealt a really crushing blow, like a, like a, like a critical hit or something from a really creature, like two sizes larger than you, like it could mess up your armor. Um, and, and so you can actually lose that stuff. Now, I, I don't make it get lost in the middle of that battle. Cause I don't think that's fair, but during the next rest, when those PCs are you know, prepping their gear and everything, you know, maybe polishing or cleaning or oiling or whatever, they'll notice, oh man, my ax has a huge crack in the handle. Um, yep. it needs to be repaired or it's unusable. And if I keep using it, it might break, um, yep. you know, or, oh, my armor, uh, it has degradation this, rules. You know, yeah. Yeah. So, so that sort of thing it, and, and also, you know, CNC is really good at, look, you fell in the water. Um, you better take off that breastplate or you're going to drown. Yep. Right, or you fell in the water and you didn't roll a very good swim check. So, if you drop your bag, you'll be able to make it, you're not going to die. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that's a good one.
0: And so, it's a choice, right? Like, either and you know, and you all you give chances for other PCs to help them, right? And then it's dangerous, but there's a, always a possibility of losing a gear of some sort. Um, and a good a good dm i would say is going to be one that uses that judiciously right it's not every time and it's not going to be you know a, a malicious attempt to make every pc lose all of their gear and break all their weapons but there has to be some sort of consequence for choosing certain actions or or for the choices that are made to overcome a particular obstacle when things are supposed to be dangerous and that's kind of what this is going for but then you're right like it, all it does is repeat the extreme cold and the extreme heat from the dmg and you know it's not uh not that tough not as tough as what they talked about previously
1: yep uh, so the the combining hazards sidebar is solid here mm-hmm. i like that yep. yep um
0: oh the terrain the, hazards is good like talking yep. about lava and geysers and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's all good
1: um and uh, frigid water while well, your cold weather gear is not enough
2: Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah.
1: Uh, resistance to cold, still good enough. Um, what I wanted to say was, if you need a bunch more things like this, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything is an amazing source.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yep. Its chapter on hazards is super strong. It does a bunch of different things, and it has a, a section on uh, treating spell effects as uh, weird weather or hazard occurrences. I think that's really, really nice. Yeah, that's nice. Um. So, yeah, this is uh, all stuff you should expect to run into. Um, my totally unfair criticism is that I want everyone, this is not just this book, but everyone, to let their wilderness hazards get a little weirder and more mm-hmm. magical. Yeah. Uh, I don't need to be sort of full Gonzo, but just like five percent weird would be nice, right? Um, I've, I've sort of been on about this for a long time, so mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Uh, well, because you know, one of the things that Fourth Edition did really well was have nice terrain effects. Yep, and you know exactly
1: the pages I'm it, talking ab- about.
0: Absolutely, I do because yep. I love them too, and uh, and I, I bring some of those into my Fifth Edition games and actually into my Castle and Crusades game too. Um, nice. Although not not with such a mechanical um, format. But, sure. um, you know, but yeah, that's exactly the type of thing, right? It's supposed to be a fantasy world. Um, and, you know, even even a relatively low magic world is still a fantasy world. And it still can have weird places with interesting elements of the terrain that aren't just your standard. And uh, And you're right, I agree with you, there's not enough of that. Um, and not just these this isn't just a, a a you know critique of this book, but pretty much all of them <laughs> yeah. Any, anyone who deals with anything terrain based uh, sometimes they don't really um, go far enough right
1: uh, and then the the last page of the chapter is the hazard occurrence chance uh, which you've kind of got to decide and the sidebar says this how much you want to follow what they're doing here.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: They're really kind of saying, This is a suggestion, you should follow your bliss, it's fine,
0: right? Right, um, but if you don't know, like, how common should slippery ice be? Well, yep. in the desert, of course, it has a zero percent chance, but right. in on the coast, maybe 15 percent, like that's you know, decent guideline in the tundra, 90 percent, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yep. but if you don't, I'm a, I'm a biologist, so of course, I know. a a lot about different biomes and things that are just sort of second nature to my knowledge foundation. Other people don't know, especially if you've grown up in a city and lived in a city all your life and never really been in the wilderness very much, right? Um, You know, there's a wide range of experience that people have. Some people never go, you know, into the wilderness and some people have gone to the wilderness quite often, but it's impossible to tell what the experience level of people are who are reading this book. So I appreciate the table. Um, I also appreciate that they say, you know, of course, salt it to your taste, right? You change yep. it if you want. It's not, this is not a hard and fast rule. And as you mentioned, like, I would add about 15 or 20 more hazards that are a little bit more kind of weird and strange.
1: Yep. Um, Like, especially, uh, Wasteland, to me, wants to have a lot of room for weirdness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, Because that's... So there's a a video game called Massive Chalice um, by Double Fine. And you spend a lot of that game um, doing a a sort of XCOM point-to-point shooter thing um, in some very weird terrains. And it's great. And there's a lot of you know exploding flora to complicate your life and Mm -hmm. can't cross over that complicate your life (laughs) and i just think that like most of those i'd want to describe as a wasteland they're signs of magical corruption so wasteland springs right to mind
2: right right yeah um
1: but yeah that's a this is a great chapter um you're going to need it open in front of you a lot during play, right? So, you know, if you're going to be GMing this in in person, just start, you know, photocopying this and putting it up on your DM screen. Just do yourself a favor. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to care.
0: Yeah, I I don't I don't think they will.
1: That that seems very much like something they would support. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Uh I, I'm very very into what they're doing here overall. Um
0: Yeah, I, I was do,
1: I I, w- like, I have to admit that I wonder how I'd feel about it, you know, over the course of the long haul
2: mm-hmm.
1: and like playing Tomb of Annihilation has been really interesting and eye opening for me in a lot of things I thought I knew about myself as a player. Mm-hmm. Um because my experience at dungeons is pretty light overall. Right. Like As the player in a dungeon, uh, long-term dungeon play is not something I've done a lot of. Mm-hmm. Um, and the very, very deadly traps of Tomb of Annihilation have not been something I've had to think about. So like, we, we've talked about it a lot, just the, the people playing the game to help us like, recalibrate our thinking and how to approach all the content. Um, but like we skipped a whole bunch of rooms in a row in last night's game for good reason. Mm-hmm. They were terrible and we shouldn't have gone to them.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, Which is what you should do. Like that's the appropriate response. Right.
1: Right. And, you know, we weren't even sure what threat we were skipping.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. But we were making Guesses as educated as we could get about uh, what the threat was likely to be and what the reward was likely to be and just, yeah, nah, good. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I think the learning curve on players is going to be brutal in, in the West marches and losing some players to disillusionment with that style. Pretty likely the book talks about that. The first chapter, like you need the players to be on board with this. No, no, be real with them about being on board with this. Mm-hmm. It's super rewarding, but um, they could lose their characters to something that doesn't feel very heroic.
0: Right. Well, uh, so, you know, like in, in, in in basic d and in first edition, um, there was a procedure that you followed, right? So when oh. you're doing a hex crawl, which is basically what this is, but just with a separate sort of framework on top of it. Um, at least the travel the travel part is the hex crawl, right? Um yeah. there's a procedure that you follow. And um it 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 uh it tells you um you know, it, 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 when I say procedure, it's more like a checklist. Like, here's how the events of the day proceed, right? Um, yeah. And, and there's, there's a sort of checklist for the players, and there's a checklist for the DM, right? And I kind of wish that they had put that sort of framework on this chapter. Okay. Because, um, and it doesn't have to be an end game, here's what you do. It can be a, when you're prepping for the session right? You need to figure out the weather, you need to figure out, uh, you know, uh, how that's going to affect travel time and distance, you're going to eat, right? And things like that, Um, in a way that also is accepting of the fact that, you know, in this West Marches, in this framework, you know, the players are going to show up and they're going to go where they want to go, right? Like, you don't necessarily have everything planned out, but there's a way to do that in a more kind of procedural manner. I hate saying that word because I think people feel like that's like a bad word, like, oh, it's not free flow enough and it means everything's predetermined and it means this and that and this and that. And that's not Uh really what it means. It just means that the DM has a specific list of things that have to be done every watch period to make sure that the game runs smoothly. And the players should know that, right? They need to know that. And just like they need to buy in, you, you know, what we were talking about before they need buy-in. Well, they need to buy into what the DM has to do too. Right. And if that sure. means it's a little bit procedural, then that's okay because it's going to make the game run smoothly. Yeah. And I, I just wish they had put that sort of procedural framework at the beginning of this travel chapter, because it really, really counts during travel. If, if, that if the party travels a mile and then one of the players says, "Oh, by the way, what's the weather like?" That's not good, right? You you should know, and and you have to roll it real quick. You should already uh-huh. know what the weather uh-huh. is, right? The DM should already yeah. know. But if you forgot yeah, that, that. You, you know what I mean? So, because suddenly, if they yeah, say, "Oh, well, it's that. a pouring down rainstorm," well, ha- we didn't notice we that for the past mile.
1: We didn't travel enough. It's pouring down rainstorm. Right?
0: Exactly. Can't, but they do that? Right, exactly. And so, you know, it's sort of little things like that, where I think maybe a procedural, you know, like, there's a lot of information in this chapter, here's how to go about adjudicating these things. And here's when to adjudicate them. The weather, you should know the next, you know, four watches of weather at the beginning, you should have already rolled them. So that if a player says, Hey, my PC is going to try to, you know, look at the clouds and look at the sky and the sun and all that, and try to determine, you know, if he can predict what the weather is going to be, you could actually, you know, tell him something. Yep. So. Yeah. That's a minor quibble though, right? Like that's, that's a minor No, I mean,
1: quibble. you're making a really valid point about the burden that's on the GM, right? Mm-hmm. Um. getting all of that procedure of just here's the information you need locked and loaded basically all the time. Right. Right. right.
0: Yeah. Because sometimes uh, it's going to be a case tough. where the players don't ask, right? They don't ask that information or there isn't a in monster encounter or right. there isn't but whatever, you, but you are still prepared for that information.
1: Right. Well, whether they ask or not, you still need right. to be telling them because it's their surroundings.
0: Exactly. Um, exactly. It's it's again, it's that similar to that, you know, because then because then here's the thing, here's what I'm thinking. Then they could put in to that procedure, right? That list of here's how you do this, and here's when. They could put in the, you know, think about words to describe the landmarks the PCs are seeing. Is there a mountain range? Is there a forest? Are there bodies of water? It is, is this is it cloudy? Is it foggy? Like what what things are the PCs seeing that give them that. That sort of landscape analysis that they need in order to figure out that they got lost and how to get back on track or to figure out that they're going in the wrong direction anyway, because you're not letting them just say, I want to go to the crypt we were at yesterday, right? So all of that fits into that sort of procedural framework too, and then you're ready for it. So I guess what I'm saying is the burden on the DM is high in this sort of game, at least for the travel portion. Not that it's not high for the players too, but it's really high for the DM. And so having a procedure in place to tell me when to prep that part or when I know I'm going to need to think about that and to have those tables ready or that information ready so that if I do need to roll randomly for a wandering monster, I've got it right there instead of bumbling around looking for it. That's important and that uh-huh. would have been a great addition, and I wish they would have done it.
1: Yeah, I feel you. I feel you. I mean, you've, you've definitely got my, got my gears turning on how you could store that as densely as possible for the, the GM's use,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? right. Um, I feel like... Probably for a lot of DMs, the answer here is to um, find some kind of online tool and right. just have that running on their laptop while they run the game or, or on their desktop if they're, you, you know what I mean? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, and uh, I'm not saying I've got one ready to go, though. I <laughs> Fortunately, our listeners will have one for me because that's, how it works (laughs) around here. But I mean, I I definitely agree that just making the GM's life easier is a key missing step in a lot of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It's making the player's lives harder and the GM's lives harder. And that does kind of tell you why West Marches is not the default style of play. Just saying. Yeah. Uh, it,
0: it is definitely a distinct style. It, it is. It, it There are certain thematic and stylistic choices that are particular. And so in other words, there's more than just the amount of work that goes into making it not necessarily the, the primary choice for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. So final thoughts, it's been a couple hours now <laughs> Yeah. We're go- we're going on an episode, a chapter, which is fine.
1: Um, <laughs> I mean, it's what we kind of expected. Yeah,
0: that's what we. Um,
1: do. <laughs> I mean, I've I, I pretty much said what I need to say about this chapter. Um, it's strong. You're absolutely right that some some more approachability for the GM would go a long way. Yeah. Um. And I mean, it, in all fairness to them, that's hard.
0: Absolutely,
1: yeah. I, I certainly don't have a solution ready to go. Just uh, I kind of want to f- kind of a tinker with. Can I solve this? You I solve each day with a single roll somehow? Right. So that you just roll at the start of the day, and then you know what the weather is going to be for the rest of the day,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, as long as you're not changing biomes, which actually you're going to do so. Even then, it's not so helpful if you see mm-hmm. what I mean.
0: Yeah, but you could actually could create a table, right? Right. Where it gives it can- you all, f- all, f- all six watches what the weather's going to be that day.
1: Yeah, it, it'd be something right. like you know, um, here's ten different weather patterns. Right. Right. And now look up the biome you're in. Okay, go.
0: Right. Exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah,
2: and I don't know cross, if that cross, would actually yeah,
0: cross-reference me, the but- month. Right, cross-reference the month, and cross-reference the biome, and then you get your four choices of tables. You pick one, and then it tells you what your weather is that whole day.
1: Yeah, I think there could be something to that. Uh, anyway, I'm still really loving what I'm seeing in this book overall.
0: Oh yeah, totally. Um, I I love it. it. It's everything I want.
1: So so next time we're going to see Chapter Three, World Building, um, which I'm I'm looking forward to. I can't wait to see what all we uh, have to say about this. Um, and yeah. it's going to be just as like, dense and varied mm-hmm. as chapter two was, but on a totally different set of vectors. Yep.
0: Um, yeah.
1: And for sure. even, like, even if we do our best, I'll be real with our listeners covering all of chapter three in one episode would be a Herculean for people who talk more on target than we do. <laughs> It is a lot.
0: Yeah, there's a lot. It is
1: a, it is an immense chapter that covers so many different important things.
0: Yeah, um, I, th- I think it's okay if we do that in two episodes.
1: But like, chapter three to me, uh, some of the some of the stuff in here is sort of the moment where this book becomes the necessary DMG 2
2: Okay, I can um, see that.
1: When you start hitting factions and dungeon design and region design, yeah, okay, yeah, that's that's digging the extra layer deeper that the the five e DMG couldn't, right, right, and you know we critiqued the fifth edition DMG for putting some of this stuff so early. I am talking about next episode's chapter. Sam, makes <laughs> me stop. Brenda. Stop. What are, what are you We're doing? We're done.
0: Say goodbye this to everybody. fault. Where can people find you on the internet? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can find me on Twitter uh, at Brandis Stoddard. I write for tribality.com. My personal blog is brandisstoddard.com. And my Patreon is brandisstoddard. Sam where can people find you
0: <laughs> you can find me on uh, rpgmusics.com and on twitter at dmsamuel and uh, all over the Tome Show discord and just wherever I'm everywhere Right, on. right and on. so with that we bid you adieu